There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, contributing editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by the rapper and Orwell Prize winning writer Darren McGarvey to talk about all things class, the subject of his new State of the Nation book, The Social Distance Between Us. Hailing from Pollock in Glasgow, McGarvey, who came up under the stage name Loki, Loki, argues that the vast distance, geographic, economic and cultural, between the people making decisions and those at the sharp end is what has turned Britain into, as he puts it, a fucking bin fire. Now, thanks very much for joining us, Darren. And I'd like to start with a challenging line from one of your interviewees, the new up boy made billionaire Tom Hunter, as you chat to him about his philanthropy, he hits out with this. You keep bringing me back to class, Darren. And on that, at least, he's right, isn't he? Why do you bring every one of social, uh, Britain's social ills back to class? Well, first of all, it's important to uh, acknowledge that I understand very well that class is not the answer to every question or problem. And that, uh, like all sociological lenses, it's often very low resolution. And even the people that you you invoke it to advocate on behalf of will often very fiercely resist that sort of categorisation. However, uh, given the absence of discussion about class politics and class relations in this country for the best part of 40 years, I think me dialing it up to 11 is absolutely justified to really hammer home uh, that while it's not a perfect way to explain a lot of things, it's a more useful way than many of the metrics that we currently rely on to try and determine certain aspects of our society and and where we sit as a society. And I was very struck in that discussion with Tom Hunter, um, you know, to act his way up and become this, this very rich guy, uh, sports merchandise mogul, I think. You report feeling that despite yourself, despite that class analysis, you end up personally feeling that you've got to defer to him in some ways because of his wealth. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think that it's good that you've brought that out. You know, none of the reviews have touched on that stuff so far, but there's a lot to the book that's not really been reflected in a lot of the coverage of it, as is usually the case with 
with the initial uh, flurry of articles and stuff like that. You more get a, a sense of the reviewers' hang-ups than you do my own. Um, but I thought it was important to sort of to zero in on that subtler facet of the class picture, which is the unconscious deference that we experience. And deference is show, show, takes many forms. Take, for example, popular conspiracy theories that have been doing the rounds for a long time, but really took root when you have this convergence of global crisis and an information ecosystem, which is full of social media generated content. And, and really at the heart of every conspiracy theory is this deeply rooted belief that elites are just so cunning and just so intelligent that they could pull off multiple seemingly unrelated uh, coups of some sort, pulling the blinkers over the public's eye on a mass level with no one giving up the information anywhere, no one letting it slip, no, nothing leaking and people believe this stuff, but what they don't realise is that that is an expression of their deference. That is because they think only these people could possibly do this. And they are obviously well capable of doing this. And clearly they aren't. The big problem we have in the world is the incompetence of our elites. Um, so really trying to kind of show through that interaction with Tom that even I, as someone who is well aware of the contours of class who's well aware of the cultural subtleties around class, even I, in the moment where I had the opportunity to speak in a very forthright manner to someone who you could argue is representative of the super wealthy, even I felt this sudden urge to choose my words very carefully. And it wasn't even just in my interaction with them verbally. There were various instances throughout the encounter where we relaxed certain rules for Tom that we didn't for other contributors or when I was asked to step on a pa off of a path and into the mud to, to, to give Tom the full two metre of the path so his shoes didn't get dirty uh, or when I was asked to move from the, the comfortable warm car where I normally was sat during the production into the small cold car you realise in that moment where you are in the pecking order you understand your rank and actually, what's really strange is Tom never asked for any special treatment, and I emphasise this in the book. He's very down-to-earth. He's very kind of cordial. He's easy to strike a conversation up with. He, he really does listen when you speak. And so it was weird that we all intuitively just rearranged ourselves around <laughs> him. And I think that, that spoke to something that's more reflexive about a class system where you just kind of have an interpretation of what your place is in any given dynamic. So I get that, that idea that it's, it's, it's got under your skin in a way, the, the class thing, and that's, that's clearly a big part of it. But is the power, whether conscious, whether deliberate, or in the case of Tom Hunter, maybe not deliberate at all, is that really about his money? Because in this book, you spend a lot of time talking about things like language, and it sometimes feels as much kind of Freud as Marx because you're talking about, you know, the, the drug addicts craving for connection in a dark room or the controlling ego of the, of the tribal leftists. Like, it's always a dilemma, and especially in England, I think, whether, whether class is about money or, or, or something else. Yeah, I think for, for this kind of deference, it's obviously there are different instances. So someone like Tom, who comes from a working-class background and very much speaks in a manner that you would expect for someone from the, the kind of west of Scotland. Um, so so the deference to him arises as a result of 
an understanding of his social position. He's very much in our culture in Scotland, framed as someone who uh, does business with the government, negotiates with the government, influences the government. And so you go into the interaction with that understanding. Whereas if you take someone like Boris Johnson, who I would say is probably in, in a lot of debt, and isn't necessarily like liquid rich, uh, but his, his rank and his position comes and the deference towards him comes from the resilience imbued uh, in him by the strength of his powerful social connections and also because he presents in a manner despite his kind of you know his sort of clownish appearance and how he sets himself up in contrast to what people perceive as the establishment he's very much in with the bricks of, of the establishment he's a dyed in the wool elite who went to Eton and who relies on the support of people both in politics and in media and in the private sector to really kind of buoy him up, and as Mick Lynch said, despite his unembarrassable nature. And so I think deference comes in and becomes operative in different ways. It's important to defer to a doctor, to a pilot. It's important to defer to experts in a particular field at a particular moment. But there is also this unconscious deference where I think it's actually quite dangerous uh, when you talk about people like Boris Johnson, for example. Now, you've already alluded to the idea that there's sometimes grey areas in class. And I just want to get into a little bit how you think we can nonetheless use it in policy and politics. You know, I mean, speaking personally, my dad was out of work for much of my childhood, but my grandparents on the other side were well-to-do doctors. And I think when you poke around, you find there's often a bit of a mix. And of course, there's now a mix in your story too, because you've gone from rags to respectability or whatever. I appreciate in the book the way that very much unlike the John Lennon of the early 70s, you're not sort of just holding yourself up as a working class hero, plain and simple. You're saying you need to acknowledge how things have gone a bit greyer in terms of the lines for you too. Yes, and I think that that works. That's effective for two reasons. One, it shows my willingness to reflect and, 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 and willingness to try and get honest about certain things and recognition that there are nuances. But also what it shows is that because I've gone through that transition, I'm well qualified to talk about it. So it has that dual uh, impact on the reader where it both hopefully would endear me to them, regardless of their politics, but also authenticate me as someone who can reflect the experiences of both sides of that socioeconomic divide. Now, what's interesting about the discussion about class when you make it from the ground up is that people will often point out, no, it's more complicated than that. But see if you actually look at how our society is structured, how companies are structured, how they're linked into politics, and all of these rules about how much people earn, and even this talk just now about inflation and how pressure from the working class is driving it. It's interesting because class is very simple when you look at it from the top down and the class structure is absolutely guaranteed by the people who oversee the system, except they don't see that as a class structure. But actually, it very much is, is my reading of how society operates from the top down. Um, you know, the different level of privileges conferred upon people who are born in certain postcodes or who are born into certain families the dearth of accountability for their mistakes, how their quirky uh, 
eccentricities are framed in culture as being sort of interesting, idiosyncratic, you know, whereas if it was a poor person who was behaving in that way, they would just be called a vulgar chav or a tramp or something. There's weird, it's weird if you're a landowner and you smell a piss, you're like an eccentric, you know, like you're a, you're like a crazy bohemian uh, eccentric or something. Um, but if 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 you're a, if you're a poor person and you smell a piss, you're just unworthy of any respect. Uh, it's just piss, you know, and people of all classes smell of it. But what class does is, it kind of frames your behaviour in a certain way. The further up the food chain you go, the more favourably your odious behaviour is framed by culture, and that's just one metric I I use to sort of. Uh, to bring that class analysis into play. And, and, and as a kind of, you've got Boris Johnson as quite a useful and ready-made symbol of, um, uh, you know, elite, elite privilege in there. And you've got a kind of gritted teeth admiration for Margaret Thatcher as a woman of some vision, but none for Boris Johnson, who I think it's fair to say you paint as a clown. But I do wonder, is there a missing link there? Because the, the kind of worship of property in her time is the thing that's pushed house prices to the point where ordinary people can't go on, on get on on the ladder and where the tight circle of privilege has narrowed again so that you get Boris Johnson instead of Margaret Thatcher. It can sort of still be her fault, can't it, even if even if she doesn't embody it? Oh, absolutely. I think that what I was kind of trying to acknowledge when talking about Thatcher or even Blair to some extent later on in the book is simply that you can understand the attraction that these politicians didn't win massive landslides simply because the media got behind them. The media, in many ways, might have got behind them because they sensed what way the wind was blowing, and that's a debate that always goes on and on and on. But with Thatcher, I think the difference really was that that she 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 did have a certain level of conviction. Boris just blows whatever way the wind is blowing. Um, part part of Thatcher's demise is it comes in how stubborn uh, she was as a politician. And how pig-headed she was to, to get her way. And uh, when it comes to the, 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 the idea of property, the cult of, of, of uh, home ownership, actually, in the beginning, I believe that that, that, was, that was a genuinely radical idea, expanding this notion and fr- franchising people to own property because for a, for a long, most of, of history, only the very wealthy uh, or monarchs uh, had property and then, you know, the barons wrested that power from them and then the commoners wrested a bit of that power from them. And so, in a sense, you can see why people thought Thatcher was about aspiration and about acknowledging working-class aspiration because, in a way, she was. The problem is the free market ideology to which she very strictly adhered in many ways uh, th- this didn't allow for an expansion of the public realm. This didn't allow for uh, a- a- an expansion of quality social housing. And so now we're dealing with the aftershocks of that, which is expressed as residential instability, which impacts educational attainment, health. And you can see how these shocks echo around all the other areas uh, in-, in Britain's public life uh, and how you know a politician who maybe is adhering a bit too closely an ideology can end up creating a big crisis further down the line. Yeah, indeed. I mean, now, um, just on the book itself, the structure I notice is some pretty much exactly the same, I thought, as Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, with the first two thirds being reported and, uh, and, and the last, albeit, I should say, with more first-hand experience than the old Etonian had, and the final third being more political 
analysis and you quote Orwell at the start. So I just wanted to ask you briefly if that was deliberate and then to give people listening a flavour of your reportage. I wondered if you could just briefly recount the story you tell us about a guy called John in Aberdeen. Yeah, so the book wasn't deliberately structured that way. What happened was during lockdown, I had a massive burst of inspiration, which was then tempered by the reality of lockdown at home with two young children. And so I I submitted a manuscript which was very much uh, unstructured or or unconventionally structured. And then we realised what I had written was three books. And so one was this reportage. One was memoir, which was more about me navigating this terrain. And then the other part was the political analysis and commentary. And so very late in the day, I decided to pull a lot of the memoir out uh, because I was confident that the book could stand on its own too. And it was important for me to try and move myself away from that for a while because it comes at a great personal cost, putting your story out there. Um, So there was nothing deliberate about the structure in terms of Orwell. I put that quote in at the start and that was very uh, in the end of the process just because I love that quote. I've used it at the top of my fringe shows. I've I've used it, uh, you know, even just to reflect on um, as I've struggled to kind of rediscover my own voice and amidst this public visibility and all the different demands that are placed on you. And to go into to John from Aberdeen, um, there are two Johns that, that I talk about in the book. One is John Diamond, and he's a Glasgow was a Glasgow boy. But the other guy, John from Aberdeen, he was a guy that I met up there when I was covering homelessness in Aberdeen, which is a very serious crisis up there. And basically, this was a guy who was living in a hostel. He had a safe accommodation. I visited him in his hostel, and he supported accommodation. I even went into his room. And it was pretty comfortable dwelling, I would say, as someone who's been residentially unstable. But the thing is, he wasn't staying in that room. He was drawn back onto the street because that's where his needs were being met. And within five minutes of of sitting beside him in the street where he would beg uh, most days, um, he, he a friend of his came by, went into the shop, bought him some wine. We talked a little more. He talked about how he had five kids, how he used to be a mental health nurse. But in his words, this seemed to have slipped away from him. And it was a heartbreaking moment when I asked him, what would he think if his kids saw him? And and he just, he was ashamed, you know? Now, it's interesting because when you look at a homeless person, you don't think they have this very rich backstory where they had a career and they had a family and they fell on very hard times. But most, most people who are homeless have a story that's just as rich as John's. And uh, everybody that I encountered throughout the process of the TV programmes on which much of the book is expanded from, it was heartbreaking. I set out to write a temperate book. I set out to write a fair-minded book. I set out to write the sort of thing someone like Steven Pinker would write, you know, that was saying, you know, there are bad things going on in our society, but if we all just muck in together, then uh, everything will be fine. And the more I was out there in the real world and the more I was on the front line and taken out of my bubble of being a very pampered author, then I just got furious and I got more furious. And so the, the challenge was was really getting that fury authentically expressed in the book and honoured, but also not toxifying the reading experience because uh, you're not going to persuade anybody anything shouting at them for 400 pages. And so where did where, where was where, where was John the last you heard of him? 
I haven't heard from John at all. That homeless project closed down uh, the year after I visited them and then the local authority moved on to a new orthodoxy which was about housing first, which on the surface obviously is a better idea, recognising that actually the homelessness issue is one of the simpler problems because what people lack is a home and then by giving them a home you can then assess what other problems are not addressed by giving someone a house. Uh, but there are, there, are, there are serious issues that remain around the quality of housing that's offered and also where that housing is offered because even today you hear stories now of people, if they're not in their house for a couple of weeks, the, the, the social tenant will just evict them and they'll become homeless. So they, they've got to meet a higher standard than u- usual tenants because they've got to be seen living in their home. Otherwise they lose their home because of the chronic housing shortage. And so this has an impact on all sorts of things. It means that they can't go to uh, they can't go to an accident emergency in case they get kept in hospital. Um, it has an impact because they don't want to, they don't want to have any encounters with police, and that means if they're living in, a, in an area where there's lots of people who are quite troubled and needing support in a densely populated area, then they're they're subject to random acts of violence, threatening behaviour. They're around drugs and alcohol. So without a, a holistic look at all of that, then the housing first strategy will will be, I would say, resigned to a certain level of failure as as the previous strategies. And I think for me, what comes out of the reportage, time and again, is a kind of logic that isn't the logic that you would feel if you're sat in a desk at Whitehall. Whether it's the Kafkaesque logic that says you can't have your benefits because you haven't got a phone to register, but you can't have your phone because you haven't got the benefits to pay for it. Or whether it's the guys saying, oh, I should give up, drink. But there again, that would mean uh, I'd be living more years and do I want to live more years around here? You know, so all of that's kind of um, emerges from your reporting. But then you get on to your your real kind of analysis. Now, what you call Act Two, I think. And as you also say, your middle class critics endlessly repeat that you are, quotes, hard hitting or unflinching. But I've got to say, it feels to me like you tread very carefully in the writing when it comes to a very subtle chapter on on the left. There's none of the personal abuse that Orwell himself meted out in the, the road to Wigan Pier and other places about the typical socialist. He said, you know, prim little man with a white collar job, usually a secret teetotaler with vegetarian leanings. But I, I think just as much as him, you really do think that the radical left needs a radical rethink if it's to get anywhere. Yeah, and I mean, that was one of the chapters that I agonised over the most because I'm very close to the radical left, politically, obviously, uh, although I've never been, I've never been uh, drawn into a, a, a subculture. I've always operated kind of like a lone wolf. I'll collaborate where it seems necessary. I don't know if that's just because I am a bit of a miserable loner. I wouldn't like to say that there's any conscious attempt to not be involved in thinking, groupthink. It's more just, I like just hanging about on my own, doing my own thing. But I did feel that I had to both defend the radical left in some way by acknowledging that this kind of concept of the left that's become popular on the culture war doesn't really represent the left that I know. But also then, as much of the book does, use that generosity of spirit to kind of... um, to, to, to ready ready the reader for the sucker punches that come where you have to kind of you have to put the boot in a bit and be a bit more honest about how you feel 
in terms of criticisms. And for me, the big issue for the radical left is that it's uh, media is a dirty word. Presentation is a dirty word, you know, and this is partly because of Blair. It's partly because of uh, the, the, the leftist natural aversion to being seen in any way as uh, interested in narratives and optics or being polished in any way. Even if you look at McLynch, the big debate about McLynch on the left on, twi- on Twitter was really a bunch of trade unionists coming out and saying, no, the reason he's doing well is because he's an expert in industrial relations. The reason he's coming across really well on TV is because he knows what he's talking about. The reason he's coming across really well is because he's sincere and he's telling the truth. The reason they, they felt they need to say all that is because the big narrative that was emerging was, wow, how effective is a radical leftist when they can deal with the press? How effective does that message get through? It just cuts through everything. I mean, he was just... It was like a lumberjack in a forest with a chainsaw. He was just cutting down all contenders. And it wasn't because he was media trained, but those skills that he possesses naturally can be learned. And this is something on the radical left no one is interested in. But unfortunately, in a social media age where 90% of content is video, you better get better at getting your message across. And if you aren't, well, you can go back to the radical fringe and you can come up with all of your justifications for why no one's interested and why you're constantly being defined according to the interests and objectives of your political adversaries. And so I, I felt that, that that was perhaps a fresh take on the radical left rather than getting bogged down on the identity politics folds and the schisms around immigration, which I do touch on. But at the same time, for me, it's all about, look at what Mick Lynch and, and the RMT have achieved by having an effective strategy, which is, this is the guy who knows what he's doing. Let's put him on the camera. Let's get somebody who knows what they're doing on Twitter and let's harness all of this energy while we can. And that, and that for me, is, is an important thing that a lot of campaigners should bear in mind. I wrote a piece when Corbyn first came in called Six Reasons Why Jeremy Corbyn Needs a, needs a Spin Doctor. <laughs> which got uh, a mixed response, as, yeah. as you might expect. But there is there is something about substance as well as the presentation, I think. I mean, you mentioned immigration. I wasn't quite sure where you came down there. There's certainly real wisdom in what you've got to say about how alienating it is if a supposedly progressive politics of a kind of campus left pursues politics as an exercise in policing yeah. language and how alienating that is for working class communities where you know, pretty rough, insulting language is, is, is what you deal with uh, every day. But I wasn't sure, are you saying that, are you worried that class awareness has slid backwards as, let's say, racial sensitivity has increased? And I know you don't want to dismiss or rubbish the campaign for sensitivity about race, but do you worry that we're kind of, as we put more attention on one, we're forgetting the other? Uh, no, I don't. But there was a time at the. I would say the culture war is kind of is it's 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 so normalised now that it doesn't register with the same force. I think it's almost kind of becoming cliche on both sides of the spectrum. To be fair, or at least that's my interpretation of it. But the the the, the period in which I'm charting in that chapter where the left lost a lot of traction. You know, we had Corbyn leading the Labour Party, right? Uh, and we had a massive case for class politics and somehow we got mired in the identity politics immigration debate 
which a lot of people on the left just backed away from, to be honest, you know. People were frightened because they didn't know what to come out and say because no one could make any sense of it. And a lot of leftists, they, they await ideological instruction from someone else who kind of steps out there first and says, this is the thing that we should do. And then, and then that filters through. And so it was a time where really if you were standing up on the left and saying, look, I'm pro-immigration and the net benefit of immigration is undeniable, but in an economic structure where the benefits are not spread evenly throughout the economy, you can understand why people who live in poverty associate higher levels of immigration with the community falling into dereliction. It doesn't seem like it's brain science. But there was a point where, you know, standing out and saying that in the midst of the kind of liberal hysteria. I mean, if the, if you had had that amount of anger from liberals when austerity was brought in, you would never have had austerity. I mean, the sheer force unleashed when, when Remainers felt they were about to be defied was, was unparalleled. And even as twee as a lot of it was, you know, the grammar shaming and all of this carry on. At the same time, it was a formidable political force. That's the first time, really, I remember that demographic getting out in the streets. And uh, and no surprise, it was because their interests were threatened. Um, so there were, there were instances, I think, where the left can learn going forward. And I think, actually, to be fair, a lot of people have learned those lessons. A lot of people have begun to reconcile where identity politics, or rather that particular style of remote online activism, sits in their hierarchy of concern. And uh, for me, uh, nothing beats getting out into the world and meeting and talking uh, because I think that there's an illusory quality to a lot of the activism that occurs online. It makes you feel like you're at the centre of it. I mean, when my book comes out, I feel like I'm at the centre of it. You know what I mean? I feel like something is happening in the world, but it's only happening in mm. my world. You know what I mean? And that's the truth. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, social media really does tap into our worst narcissistic tendencies whether we're fighting for something or whether we're fighting against yeah, something. Yeah, and you use this phrase, narcissism of small differences, a well-chosen phrase for what you're talking about there. Um, one example you don't mention, which I worry is driving people particularly mad at the moment, to some extent on both sides, is this argument about gender and trans rights and where you feel you look at social media and former allies are kind of laying into each other with a ferocity that you worry is only going to benefit Putin in, in the yeah. end. I mean, and you see Labour people squirming like as they try and chart a way through this. I mean, that is just an example where like the way that um, people a long way from policy and politics would talk is just quite different from the the, the way people are very conscious of language would. What what would you recommend to yeah. Labour, Scottish Labour, in in finding a a way through this? I, I would, I, 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 goodness, I, I don't know if I would be so confident to make a recommendation. I feel like part of the reason why this particular debate is so fierce and why in certain aspects of it there is a toxicity which from a distance kind of mirrors mirrors itself. I think it's because this is one of those... I can't think of another instance where you have two protected groups who have very real safeguarding concerns which are linked to their deepest integrity as human beings uh, that seem to cut across each other. I can't think of an instance where that's happened before. Usually the argument is, here is a protected group and 
all the people get behind that and say they need enhanced strikes and the people who are fighting that are on the other side and it's kind of more clear cut. Mm-hmm. But this time what you have is you have this existing in the social media space almost exclusively now and it's become a real boon for people who want to um, invoke this lightning rod culture war to drive revenue, to drive discussion. Otherwise uninteresting and boring people just have to tweet something stupid about this and go viral. Maybe there's echoes of the way Labour ended up discussing, you know, anti-Semitism online and, 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 and Israel and all of that because, again, that... You know, both 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 sides of it could claim sort of uh, protected characteristics, as you as you put it, and that was a recipe for real car crash. Yeah, I, I think in this, and you 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 forgive me for body swerving the anti-Semitism stuff, uh, because I, I I just don't have a real depth of knowledge um, on all of those situations and. I've decided that as someone who has a public platform, I'm going to stick to what I know because I see the damage that's done when people who think that they are now generalists because they've written an article about trans inclusion or gender criticism or Israel or Palestine uh, and they got lots of likes and then they think, oh, well, I'm now an expert on foreign policy or I'm now an expert on sexual identity or intersectionality or freedom of speech and it's like, nah, you got your column because you were good at writing about a very specific area of politics and you ought to stick to that because you're filling the world with garbage and bile. So my, my feelings don't really publicly stretch on the trans mm. issue beyond my understanding that it's a rare occurrence where you have people who are are, are, are dealing with very deep fears about their sexuality, their, safe, their safety uh, and their identity and, 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 and these concerns for many, seem to cut across each other. That's that's unusual, at least from my understanding of recent social progress, and I think that's one of, of, of the reasons why it's such a fierce debate. Sticking to what you know and sticking to what comes out of engaging in the real world rather than on Twitter seems like a good note on which to end. So thanks very much to Darren for joining us, and thank, to, thank you to all of you for tuning in to hear our discussion. Darren's book is out with Ebury Press and available everywhere. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber, as we like to say, uh, grab a copy of our new issue, Prospect Magazine, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk. In the current issue, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, from Sam Friedman, and from sex worker Tilly Lawless, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.